We're in John chapter 12 this morning. I'm going to begin in verse, verse 12 of chapter 12. Although really to get the running start, we ought to read the first 11 verses, but I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to refrain from that this morning. Um, read all the way through to verse 19 of John 12. So it's on the next day, on the next day, what next day? The next day they were in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And they were having, they were having a feast. They were there in Bethany. This is there in their home. And Mary comes and she takes this very expensive perfume and anoints the feet of Jesus and she wipes the perfume, the oil, if you will, off of his feet with her hair. And the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume, it tells us in verse 3. And then Judas was not happy about that because he thought it was such a waste of money. This, he says that this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's quite a bit of money. And, of course, it could have been given to the poor. He's got to put a nice spiritual, religious spin to it. And John even interjects here. He says, that, and so we are going to look at the first couple of verses. I'm just going to paraphrase them, though. He says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He said this because he controlled the money. He was the treasurer. Now, why in the world would Jesus have Judas be the treasurer, for I'm calling him that term? He kept the money box, and he used to steal from it. They must have done an audit and realized there's a problem here. And I don't know. I don't have an explanation for that. In my mind, I'm thinking, you know, the old saying, you keep your friends close and your enemies closer, you know? Um, but Jesus rebuked Judas. Says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And that went right over the heads of everybody in the room. And, of course, there was a large crowd that was there. Because I wanted to see Jesus, but I also wanted to see Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And because of that, the chief priests, they not only wanted to put Jesus to death, but they wanted to put Lazarus to death. Because on account of him, it says many of the Jews were going away and they were believing in him. So the next day, this is interesting because if the next day is a Sunday, which would be the first day of the week, 
how is this reckoning of time given to us? Because that dinner where Mary anointed the feet of Jesus was on a Saturday, which was a Sabbath. Unless it happened on a Saturday evening, which would have technically been Sunday in Jewish thinking, but in Roman thinking, Referring to Sunday would be the next day. You follow my, my thinking on this? So it's interesting how, how John kind of interlaces the, the two cultures here. It says that when a loud crowd had come to the feast, what feast? The feast of Passover. And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they began shouting, Hosanna, or save now. By the way, we read it in Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. That's why we read it this morning. Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Indeed, the King of Israel. John is brief here. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's a quote out of the Septuagint from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. These things, his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things for him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him, and for this reason also the people went to meet him because they heard that he had performed this sign, that is the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not accomplishing anything. Look, the world has gone after him. They're angry. They were plotting to kill him. Eventually they do within a few days. But they're angry because they're saying, look, the entire world has gone after him. Would that have not have been wonderful if that had been true that day? And if that had been true today as well? So, Father, we ask that you speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word. We thank you, Lord, again for this incredible sacrifice by which you have gave yourself for us. Speak to our hearts this morning, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. This entrance into Jerusalem is often referred to as the triumphal entry. It's recorded in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and here in John 12. The, the, stories, the four stories don't focus on the same thing, which I find fascinating, but also it makes a lot of sense to me that they wouldn't. 
And even in reading this and reading the, the four Gospels, with the exception perhaps of Luke chapter 19, which I, I referred to later, there, there really isn't a whole lot of triumph about this entry, this coming in. Of course, in Luke 19, 40, it says that Jesus told the, the Pharisees that, that if, his, if followers were to be silenced, the stones would cry out. Again, probably citing Habakkuk chapter 2, 11. But John's story is a little different. John's story is a little different because you have this very brief description of the entry into Jerusalem. Prior to that, there at the house of Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, and Mary comes in and anoints Jesus, preparing him for his burial. That's what he recognizes. That she has this in mind, at least in some way, some shape, some form. Nobody else really gets it. But it, it's talking about the near death that Jesus is about to experience on the cross. And then you have this, this incredible event where people are... are, are, are Shouting and, and, and saying, save now, save now, Hosanna. Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord, indeed the King of Israel. Which really, if you remember, this, that's kind of a throwback to what Nathaniel said in chapter 1, verse 29, when he referred to Jesus as the King of Israel. It's also a throwback back to chapter 4, which we just got out of where the Samaritans confessed that Jesus was whom? The Savior of the world. Save now, save now. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, where, where, where uh, and I'm going to read it to you from the book of Zacharias. He's riding in, there, I, I don't want to stumble on the words. I, there's a particular aspect of this that I, that I want to bring out here. Zechariah is a hard one to find, especially when everybody's staring at you. No, I'm kidding. I found it. It's right before Malachi. I'm reading this to you out of the New King James. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. You see, John doesn't include all of this. Lowly or humbly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is riding in on a donkey humbly. Luke tells us that as he looks over the city, as he's descending down the Mount of Olives, that he's weeping over the city. Hardly a fit presentation for a conquering king. 
But he's weeping over the city, not because he has to die for them, but he's weeping over a city that he knows that will reject him. And then years later, they will pay and pay severely. As in 70 AD, the Romans finally go in and take the city, ransack the city, destroy the temple. And that they had not recognized him on that their day. Which there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus means by that phrase. But this was the day that the Lamb of God, according to the book of Exodus, was presented to the people. That was the day that the Lamb of God would enter into the home of the people and they would examine him, the Lamb, for those days and then they would finally put it to death four days later. And that's how they would observe the Passover meal. Jesus comes and he makes this presentation of himself, but Zechariah prophesies 500 years earlier that he comes humbly, he comes lowly. He's riding on a donkey. He's not coming on a conquering horse or on a chariot or on a camel or some uh, other animal. He's coming on, on, a, on a humble beast of burden. And interestingly enough, uh, uh, Luke, Ma- Matthew refers to it that there was actually two donkeys involved in this. There was the, 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 uh, the mother and then there was a younger foal who had never been ridden. That's important because we do see in other passages in the Old Testament that, that animals, when they were, they were set aside for a particular thing, for a particular purpose, like the two cows that hauled away the cart when the Ark of the Covenant was placed on the cart by the Philistines. There were two cows that had never been, been yoked before. It was this idea of this incredible special sanctification and no doubt an intercession by the Holy Spirit upon that donkey where Jesus just got up on him and rode him coming in humbly. The people are, it must have been a, I hope somebody, I hope somebody filmed it, right? I, I can't wait to watch all this stuff on YouTube. And I, 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 got, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll get to see it. It must have been a crazy scene. People are taking off their coats. Now, they didn't have a whole lot of clothing then. They didn't have closets like you and I do. They were taking off their outer garments and laying them on the ground as an act of respect. They were cutting down palm trees, and they were laying them down as as an act of respect. It's interesting about the palms because 150 years before this time, Simon Maccabeus, when he delivered Jerusalem, when he comes into Jerusalem, they celebrated that with with praise and palm branches and and musical instruments, and it's it's actually given to us in... in, uh, in, uh, 1 Maccabees chapter 13, verse 51, I'll read it to you briefly. On the 23rd day of the second month in the 175th, or 171st year, the Jews entered it, that is Jerusalem, with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments 
and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. That's out of the New Revised Standard. A great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. That was about to happen again, and yet the people did not realize that. Because their vision of salvation, their comprehension of salvation, and therefore, their understanding of a Savior was very different than God's understanding. Very different. They were looking for someone to kick out the Romans. They were looking to have that sense of prestige like they had during the time of David, during the time of Solomon. They were looking for deliverance. That was what was on their mind. That was what was on their hearts. That was, that was their desire. And yes, we do need to be delivered from the bondage of sin, do we not? They were looking for deliverance, but they were looking for a political deliverance. And Jesus was there to offer them a spiritual deliverance. I think that's an important thing to recognize and to remember and to give thought to. Because a political deliverance in and of itself, even if it lasts a lifetime, is temporary. It's temporary. I was thinking about this and because I, our last Sunday in Lake Tahoe was 20 years ago last week. I'm thinking, where did the time go? And it, 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 it baffles me. I mean, 20 years ago, I had hair down to here. Uh, well, actually, I did, but it was, uh, a lot of it was still missing. I just grew it out and braided it and left it at that. But anyway, um, actually 21 years ago. Right, okay. But uh, things that have made an incredible impact in each of our lives, and they are important things, but they are still, still temporal things. Jesus enters into Jerusalem presenting the nation uh, with their king. And incidentally, he comes down from the Mount of Olives, right? Which means he went into what? The East Gate. Because it's prophesied that one day he will enter the city again through the East Gate. Which, by the way, is all, um, it's all bricked up with big, massive stones. It'll be fun to see how Jesus pulls that one off, but I'm sure he will without any effort. So in a sense, this is even foreshadowing his second coming. 
because the Old Testament prophets over and over again are talking about him ruling and reigning as king on Zion. But he, and this fascinates me, because he could have saved us any way he wanted. He would take no shortcuts for our redemption. He would take no shortcuts in the establishment of his kingdom, which is here but not yet in his fullness. He would take no shortcuts in his glorification, which was starting to unfold. We'll probably look at that on Wednesday night because we're going we're gonna to take we're going to take a week off from Ecclesiastes and, and 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 talk more about Passion Week on Wednesday night. He would take no shortcuts. And this expression here where the people are saying, save now, blessed is he who comes. That expression, he who comes, is, is a, a very long word in the Greek that I probably would mispronounce horribly and you'd probably even know it. Um, so I probably won't do that for you. But it is a familiar designation of, the, of an expectation of the Messiah and an invitation into the Messianic age. It was a technical term. The coming of the Messiah and the invitation to bring in the Messianic age. And so they say, blessed is he. Again, it's from Psalm 118, verse 26, that we read earlier. We see that in all four of the Gospels. And, and, and this, this idea of blessing God. Blessed is he. See, I go King James on you. Blessed. It's actually, it's blessed, but that's all right. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the, world, of the Lord. And I wondered about that because how often do we bless God? How many times did the psalmist talk about him blessing God? I will bless the Lord with my whole heart. His praise shall continually uh, be in my mouth. How often do we bless God? I mean, how often do we ask God to bless us? And you should ask God to bless you. Okay? It's not a bad thing. How often do you bless him? I, I love my little grandson in, in his prayers. Uh, he always ends it with, and bless the Lord. I don't know who taught him that. His, I don't know his dad or his mom taught him that. But anyway, it's a sweet thing to hear. And, and they're calling blessing upon Jesus. The one who is come to bring salvation. And be the king of Israel, coming in the name of Yahweh, because in fact, he is Yahweh. 
So he comes in and he rides in. And his disciples have no idea what's going on. They have no idea. I find that to be fascinating. Because, again, backing up to what I talked about earlier. Earlier in this chapter, we have a foreshadow of the death of Jesus. We know based on Zechariah and the quote from Zechariah that's given to us in verse 15 that Jesus comes in humbly. We know that he, he comes in on, on, on a donkey that had never been ridden before. And that an animal that was reserved for a sacred task would not be ever put to ordinary use prior to the sacred task that they did. Actually, that's a few, I just referred to one. There's, there's, there's a few, few of them. It's in Numbers 19, Deuteronomy 21, and 1 Samuel chapter 6, where animals were essentially set aside. For one, uh, and, and if they were never used for a common purpose, when they were set aside for a sacred for a sacred mission, for a sacred job. But he comes in and he presents himself to the nation and they're 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 going again, I, it's like they're probably just going crazy during this procession. And, and it's interesting because you've heard the sermon. I, I've criticized this before, but I thought I would do it again. You've heard the sermons where the same crowd that said Hosanna on Sunday called out for his crucifixion on Friday. We don't know that. It's possible, but the Bible doesn't say that. We don't, were there two different crowds? Probably. Were some of them part of both? Probably. I mean, it sounds really dramatic, doesn't it? We talk about the fickleness of human beings, but the reality is we can't prove it biblically. But it sounds good. Or at least people think it does. After the entry after the Pharisees are exasperated and the, the entire world has gone after him. Some Greeks show up. They're there. They're there worshiping at the Passover and they want to see Jesus. So they're telling the disciples and Jesus responds to this in verse 23 where he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also, and if anyone serves me, my father will honor him. 
Skipping down to verse 28, he prays, Father, glorify your name. And it says, then a voice came out from heaven and it says, God the Father is speaking. A voice comes out from heaven. He says, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And I find the response here fascinating. This is where I'm going to close. It says, so the crowd who stood by and heard it were saying that, well, it sounded to me like thunder. Or some were saying, an angel has spoke to him. Jesus responded and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. I'll, I'll leave it at that. A foreshadowing of the death of Jesus earlier in this chapter when Mary anoints his feet with oil. The entry into Jerusalem. And then Jesus, after that, talks about being glorified but being glorified in such a way using the illustration of a seed that dies unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's giving an incredible spiritual principle here that should not be missed. That new life comes from death. Jesus really using that seed to illustrate himself that, that unless a grain of wheat or a seed of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It, it's, for those of you who know stuff about agriculture and plants and stuff, the, the seed goes into the ground and it literally dies and then it produces shoots, doesn't it? I don't know how that works, but it is how God has orchestrated and created his universe, particularly life here on earth. But it's the same calling for us. Are we to live for self or are we to die for self? Unless we're willing to fall to the earth and die, we remain alone. You see, this idea of making Jesus our Lord, this idea of making Jesus our Savior, this idea of following Jesus involves our death. If any man come after me, let him take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me, Jesus said. which is a very, very, very difficult thing to do. And it's played out in many ways and in many circumstances in each of our lives. But, but, the, but I, I believe even really the act of, of giving ourselves to Jesus Christ and asking him into our life, praying to receive him, is really an act of dying if we really start and, and really give it some thought. Uh, something that we might not have even thought about when we prayed to receive Christ however long ago it was for each of us.
Because the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life, it's a comparison statement, okay? Don't walk around hating yourself. That's not what it's saying. But the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. In other words, what, where's, your, where's your priority? Where is your love? Where, where, is, where is those things that you hold value to? See, Jesus is demonstrating that by the, by the entry into Jerusalem. He, he's not all caught up in all the, all the uh, excitement. In fact, he's crying over a city that's going to reject him. He's riding in humbly. He's not caught up in the moment of excitement, but he's committed to fulfilling the mission of the Father for his life. Which, death on a cross is a whole lot more excitement than I want to experience. I don't know about you. And he recognizes that this is the purpose. Him dying on the cross is the reason why he came to begin with. And he cries out to the Father and says, glorify your name. And the Father speaks and says, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And people hear the voice of God and they want to chalk it up to thunder. People heard the voice of God and they wanted to chalk it up to some type of angelic being. Because I'm convinced if you can explain it away, then you don't have to deal with it. If you can give a rational, I don't even know if we know what rational is anymore, but that's okay. If you can give a rational explanation for that which you heard, then you can attempt to alleviate your responsibility for needing to respond to that which you've heard. See, that's important. That's important for them then as they experienced it. I think even more important for us now as we read it. The foreshadow of the death, the preparation of the body, the entry in Jerusalem, the submission of the Son to the will of the Father, and then the talking of, of <clears throat> unless a seed uh, dies and uh, falls to the earth, it remains alone, but if it dies and falls to the earth, it bears much fruit. And so this whole idea of, of, of a willing submission to death so that life will come forth is really the entire theme that John is attempting to paint for us here. This idea of what Paul talked about in the book of Philippians, 
where he talked about the fellowship of his sufferings. Some of you that are going through difficult times, have you ever thought that maybe those times are an invitation for you to walk with God in a way that is completely foreign to how you have walked with him in the past? I know that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I mean, it might be easy for me to say it on a Sunday morning or even for you to hear it on a Sunday morning. But the reality is that I think at times if, if we have been called to be disciples of Christ, taking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following him, that is exactly what he's calling us into. In closing, this holy week, Don't be too hasty to rush to the resurrection. Let me explain that. Is the resurrection important? It's of paramount importance. How's that? Without a resurrection, we're, this does, none of this counts. Paul's really clear about that in 1 Corinthians 15. However, I think the Passion Week particularly is an invitation into the fellowship of his sufferings and understanding more of what that really means in our relationship to Jesus Christ because I'm also convinced that he teaches you much better in the dark than in the light. When you go through difficulties, when you go through trials, when you go through the, the, the struggles of life, that for goodness sake, I've been a Christian for Almost 60 years? Ugh. That's hard. Why am I still going through this? Why is it still happening? How many times have I prayed, God, I know you're angry with me. I know, I've used other terms too, but I won't use Sunday morning, all right? But God, I know you're angry with me. God, I know you don't like me. Okay, I've done a lot of bad things. What did I do this time, right? It's in the fellowship of his sufferings that I believe we truly understand him to a degree or a level that without the suffering, we don't get it. We just won't get it. Because as I said at the beginning, Jesus could have saved us any way he wanted. He really, he's God, all right? Why did he choose to suffer? I'll leave you with that.